first part of this ended really abruptly and quickly, all because my audio failed, so I apologise about that. I'm going to continue with the Infinity Hotel explanation of the different kinds of infinity that there are. We've just learned there are kinds of infinity called countable infinities. I'm about to explain what the uncountable infinities are, but first I'll go to the book. And David writes, It is mathematically possible to overwhelm the capacity of Infinity Hotel. In a remarkable series of discoveries in the 1870s, Cantor proved, among other things, that not all infinities are equal. In particular, the infinity of the continuum, the number of points in a finite line, which is the same as the number of points in the whole of space or space-time, is much larger than the infinity of the natural numbers. Cantor proved this by proving that there can be no one-to-one -one correspondence between the natural numbers and the points in a line. That set of points has a higher order of infinity than the set of natural numbers. Now, David then goes on to give a version of that proof. Um, there are many versions of the diagonal argument in showing that certain kinds of infinity are bigger than other kinds of infinity. I'll go through an explanation of a diagonal argument and then go through a, another kind of explanation or a description really of how certain kinds of infinity are countable and certain kinds are uncountable. Let's have a look at a certain kind of diagonal argument. So if you go online or you go to a textbook and you look up what a diagonal argument is, what you'll often find is the argument expressed in terms of binary numbers. Let's have a look at how that one might work. So the simplest sequence of binary numbers might be the binary number for zero. And of course zero would be represented as an infinite set of zeros. Or we could have an infinite set of ones. Or we could have alternating zeros and ones. I'm not really going to be concerned about what these numbers actually represent in base 10. Let's change the order of that sequence. Maybe we could have two ones, two zeros. For people listening on audio, basically I've got um, a sequence of nothing but zeros, then a sequence of nothing but ones, then I've got a sequence of alternating 0, 1, 0, 1, then I've got a sequence of alternating 1, 0, 1, 0. Then I've got a sequence of double 1, double 0, double 1, etc. Off to infinity. You just keep on repeating different patterns. So if you write down every single permutation of zeros and ones in an infinitely long list, will you nonetheless not be able to capture a certain pattern of zeros and ones? In fact, there is going to be, even if this list was infinitely long, and so that you went on such that your next sequence was double zero, double one, double zero, double one, and then triple one, triple zero, triple one, triple zero, and etc. You just kept on doing that and you tried to shuffle around every single possible way of writing zeros and ones. Is there a number that you could write of zeros and ones that would not appear in an infinitely long list? Okay, heading down that way. Yes, there is. There is such a number. It's this number. Take the very first one, which is nothing but a series of zeros, and take the first digit of that number. It's a zero. I'll circle it. What I'm going to do to that zero there is to change it from being a zero into a one. 
I'll write that up here. Now let's go to the second number in my sequence. And that's just a series of ones. I'm going to take the second of those digits there. That's a, that's a one. And I'm going to circle that. And I'm going to change it from what it is, which is a one, into a zero. I'm going down to the third number now, and I'm going to take the third number on that list, circle it once more, it happens to be a zero, I'm going to write down a one. And then on the fourth number, I think you get the picture now, we're going to find the fourth number in that sequence, circle it, and write down a one. I'm going to repeat that for every single number in the list, off to infinity. And what I will have constructed up here at the top is a number which by definition is different to every single other number in the list. So even though that number is infinitely long, even though that list is infinitely long, and would appear if it's an infinitely long list, such that every single number in that list is different to every other number, and I've gone through every possible permutation that I can, one would think that I have constructed every single number that could possibly be constructed from zeros and ones. But no, because here, by definition, at the top, I've constructed a number that does not is not identical to any number in these lists. It's different by one digit from every single number in this list. It's different to this one because it's got a one there instead. It's different to this one because it's got a zero instead there. No number down here will be the same as that number. I've found a number that does not appear in an infinitely long list of zeros and ones where every single number in that list is constructed of nothing but zeros and ones. So this is very profound. This says that this number here is not in the list of the infinite numbers that are in the bottom list. So there must be a set of numbers bigger than this countable list. And it's countable because it's ordered. Okay, there is a specific pattern that we're following here. This one doesn't appear anywhere in that infinite pattern. It's a different kind of number. What kind of number is it? Well, it's part of a sequence of uncountable numbers. It doesn't appear in the countable set. There's another way of thinking about this. Sometimes people can struggle with the diagonal argument in trying to understand the difference between countable and uncountable. I find this version a little bit more intuitive. It's not a proof that there exist uncountable infinities, but I think it's a clearer explanation. Let's think about any countable set. There's the classic countable set, the set sometimes called N for the natural numbers. Sometimes zeros excluded. So we've got 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. That's countable. You can count. 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. What else is countable? Well, any of your so-called times tables. 0, 2, 4, 6, 8, etc. 0, 3, 6, 9. I mentioned this in the previous video. Now, these sets are of the same size, even though it would appear that not every element of the first set, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, appears in the second set, 0, 2, 4, 6, 8. So the second set is missing all the odd numbers. Doesn't that mean it's missing half of the numbers that are in the first set? Both of them are countable. Okay, you, you, can, you can count. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10. 3, 6, 9, 12. They're both infinitely big. Now, although both of them are infinitely long and infinitely large, both of them are smaller than other kinds of infinity. In particular, the infinite number of integers here, counting numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, is not as big as the number of numbers, we say in mathematics the number of real numbers, between 
0 and 1. I'll say that again. There are more numbers between 0 and 1 than there are integers from 0 through to infinity. How does that make sense? Well, as I've said over and again, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4 is countable. But what is not countable? What is an uncountably large number of numbers are all the numbers between 0 and 1. Let's see why. Let's write down 0 to 1. This is a continuum between 0 and 1. What's halfway? 0 0.5, or the fraction 1 over 2. What's a bit smaller than... What's a bit smaller than 1 half? Well, 0 0.1. What's smaller than that? 0 0.01. And smaller than that? 0 0.001. And so on. So let's try and count the numbers between 0 and 1. 0, what comes next? I certainly know what comes next down here with the integers. I can count them, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. But if I want to count the real numbers, all of the decimals, let's say, between 0 and 1, I have no hope of even starting. I don't know where to begin counting after 0. 0, um, 0 0.001, well no, it's not that because there's something even smaller than that, 0.000001, and even smaller than that. It doesn't matter what number you pick, however small it is, I can give you another number that's smaller yet. And that means I cannot count the numbers between 0 and 1. It's an uncountably large infinity. Therefore, because the number of members is so large that not only is it infinite, you can't even begin counting them, it's larger than the ones where at least you've got a hope of beginning the process towards infinity. So that's an intuitive way of trying to understand the difference between countable and uncountably large infinities. Okay, after that long digression, let's go back to the book. David writes, So there is an uncountable infinity of real numbers between any two distinct limits, like 0 and 1. Um, furthermore, there are uncountably many orders of infinity, each too large to be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the lower ones. Another important uncountable set is the set of all logically possible reassignments of guests to rooms in Infinity Hotel, or as the mathematicians put it, all possible permutations of the natural numbers. And so reordering the natural numbers in different orders, there's an uncountably large number of those. So I'm skipping a bit here and going on to the story of the puppy. Everyone likes the story of the puppy. Uh, it's not a real puppy, we don't have to worry. David writes, Infinity Hotel has a unique, self-sufficient waste disposal system. Every day, the management first rearrange the guests in a way that ensures that all rooms are occupied. Then they make the following announcement. Within the next minute, will all guests please bag their trash and give it to the guest in the next higher numbered room. Should you receive a bag during that minute, then pass it on within the following half minute. Should you receive a bag during that half minute, pass it on within the following quarter minute, and so on. To comply, the guests have to work fast, but none of them has to work infinitely fast or handle infinitely many bags. Each of them performs a finite number of actions as per the hotel rules. After two minutes, all these trash-moving actions have ceased. So two minutes after they begin, none of the guests has any trash left. 
um, just by the way, why, why did it take two minutes? Um, well, basically that's because there's this uh, sum that looks kind of like this. Begin with one minute and then the next thing we're told to do is half a minute and then the next thing we'll do is told to add a quarter of a minute. And we just keep halving the previous number and then adding together the entire sequence. Now, if you know how to add together infinite sequences, an infinite series of numbers rather, um, then you can figure this out. But if you don't, then all you need to do is to take out a calculator and you will see that the series converges to two. Um, in fact, you can prove that it identically equals two, but um, you can at least demonstrate to yourself with nothing but a calculator that, sure enough, one plus 0 0.5 plus 0 0.25 plus 0 0.125, etc., uh, is going to uh, approach two. So after that process, David writes, all the trash in the hotel has disappeared from the universe. It is nowhere. No one has put it nowhere. Every guest has merely moved some of it to another room. The nowhere, where all that trash has gone, is called in physics a singularity. Singularities may well happen in reality inside black holes and elsewhere, but I digress. At the moment, we are still discussing mathematics, not physics. Of course, Infinity Hotel has infinitely many staff. Several of them are assigned to look after each guest, but the staff themselves are treated as guests in the hotel, staying in numbered rooms and receiving exactly the same benefits as every other guest. Each of them has several other staff assigned to their welfare. However, they are not allowed to ask those staff to do their work for them. That is because if they did this, the hotel would grind to a halt. Infinity is not magic. It has logical rules. That is the whole point of the Infinity Hotel thought experiment. The fallacious idea of delegating all one's work to other staff in higher numbered rooms is called an infinite regress. It is one of the things that one cannot validly do with infinity. Skipping a little bit. One day in Infinity Hotel, a guest's puppy happens to climb into a trash bag. The owner does not notice and passes the bag with the puppy to the next room. Within two minutes, the puppy is nowhere. The distraught owner phones the front desk. The receptionist announces over the public address system, we apologize for the inconvenience, but an item of value has been inadvertently thrown away. Will all guests please undo the trash moving actions they have just performed in reverse order, starting as soon as you receive a trash bag from the next higher numbered room. But to no avail. None of the guests return any bags because their fellow guests in the higher numbered rooms are not returning any either. It was no exaggeration to say that the bags are nowhere. They have not been stuffed into a mythical room number infinity. They no longer exist, nor does the puppy. No one has done anything to the puppy except move it to another numbered room within the hotel. Yet it is not any room. It is not anywhere in the hotel or anywhere else in a finite hotel. If you move an object from room to room, in however complicated a pattern, it will end up in one of those rooms. Not so with an infinite number of rooms. Every individual action that the guest performed was both harmless to the puppy and perfectly reversible. Yet, taken together, those actions annihilated the puppy and cannot be reversed. Reversing them cannot work because if it did, there would be no explanation for why a puppy arrived at its owner's room and not a kitten. If a puppy did arrive, the explanation would have to be that a puppy was passed down from the next higher numbered room, and so on. But that whole infinite sequence of explanations never gets around to explaining why a puppy? It is an infinite regress. What if one day a puppy did just arrive at room one, having been passed down through all the rooms? That is not logically impossible. It would merely lack an explanation. In physics, the nowhere from which a puppy would have come is called a naked singularity. 
Naked singularities appear in some speculative theories in physics, but such theories are rightly criticised on the grounds they cannot make predictions. As Hawking once put it, television sets could come out of a naked singularity. It would be different if there were a law of nature determining what comes out, for in that case there would be no infinite regress and the singularity would not be naked. The Big Bang may have been a singularity of that relatively benign type. I said that the rooms are identical, but they do differ in one respect. They're room numbers. So given the types of tasks that the management requests from time to time, the low-numbered rooms are the most desirable. For instance, the guest in room 1 has the unique privilege of never having to deal with anyone else's trash. Moving to room 1 feels like winning first prize in a lottery. Moving to room 2 feels only slightly less so. But every guest has a room number that is uniquely close to the beginning. So every guest in the hotel is more privileged than almost all other guests. The cliched politician's promise to favour everyone can be honoured in Infinity Hotel. Every room is at the beginning of infinity. That is one of the attributes of the unbounded growth of knowledge too. We are not only just scratching the surface, we shall never be doing anything else. So there is no such thing as a typical room number at Infinity Hotel. Every room number is untypically close to the beginning. The intuitive idea that there must be typical or average members of any set of values is false for infinite sets. The same is true of the intuitive ideas of rare and common. We might think that half of all natural numbers are odd, and half even, so that odd and even numbers are equally common amongst the natural numbers. But consider the following rearrangement, and I'll write this down up here. Okay, this is me talking now. Okay, so this is the sequence that uh, more or less that David's written down in the book. Um, and as we can see here, all we've done is move the odd numbers after the even numbers, such that we've got two even numbers together, and then we've got an odd number. So 1, 2, 4, 3, 6, 8, 5, 10, 12, 7. And you can do that forever. And this would make it appear that the odd numbers are half as common as the even numbers. And it gets worse. I mean, what if we were to write down something like um, that we wrote down just the sequence of even numbers all the way up to 20 and then started writing the odd numbers, 1, and then I did 22, 24, 26, 28, 30, 32, 34, 36, 38, 40, 3. What would that mean? that the odd numbers are now one-tenth as common as the even numbers? We could do it every millionth, <laughs> every millionth number we could write down an odd number and the rest could be even numbers. And we'd never run out of either. What does this mean? That's quite profound. I'll read the section where David remarks on precisely that. That makes it look as though the odd numbers are only half as common as the even ones. Similarly, we could make it look as though the odd numbers were one in a million or any other proportion. So the intuitive notion of a proportion of the members of a set does not necessarily apply to infinite sets either. Now David moves on to the discussion about probability. And so let's read that section here. He writes, after the shocking loss of the puppy, the management of Infinity Hotel want to restore the morale of guests, so they arrange a surprise. They announce that every guest will receive a complimentary copy of either The Beginning of Infinity or his previous book, The Fabric of Reality. They distribute them as follows. They dispatch a copy of the older book to every millionth room and a copy of the newer book to, every, to each remaining room. 
Okay, so we've got the fabric of reality in one out of every million rooms, apparently. Suppose that you're a guest at the hotel. A book, gift-wrapped in opaque paper, appears in your room's delivery chute. You are hoping that it will be the new book, because you have already read the old book. You're fairly confident that it will be, because after all, what are the chances that your room is one of those that receive the old book? Exactly one in a million, it would seem. But before you have a chance to open the package, there is an announcement. Everyone is to change rooms to a number designated on a card that will come through the chute. The announcement also mentions that the new allocation will move all the recipients of one of the books to odd-numbered rooms and the recipients of the other book to even-numbered rooms. But it does not say which. So you cannot tell from your new room number which book you have received. Of course, there is no problem with filling the rooms in this manner. Both books had infinitely many recipients. Your card arrives and you move to your new room. Are you now any less sure about which of the two books you have received? Presumably not. By your previous reasoning, there is now only a one in two chance your book is the beginning of infinity because it is now in half the rooms. Since that is a contradiction, your method of assessing those probabilities must have been wrong. Indeed, all methods of assessing them are wrong because as this example shows, in Infinity Hotel, there is no such thing as the probability that you have received one book or the other. Okay, so this is me talking now. This is a profound insight into the nature of probability and how it cannot apply to infinite sets. What we had here was a thought experiment that set, it, set, it, set things up such that it appeared as if one out of every million rooms in Infinity Hotel had a copy of the fabric of reality and the rest had the beginning of infinity. And so you would presume on the basis in which it is stated that the probability of you going into a random room into Infinity Hotel that you would find the beginning of infinity because it seems like far more of those rooms have the, be the, the beginning of infinity. However, once the instruction comes through that everyone who received, let's say, the beginning of infinity is to move to an even-numbered room and everyone who received the fabric of reality was to move to an odd-numbered room, then in performing that exact action, you now move to one of the rooms. But you don't know which one it is. All you know is that you have moved into either an odd-numbered room or an even-numbered room, and the odd-numbered rooms contain beginning of infinity, and the even-numbered rooms contain the fabric of reality. But that seems to conflict with what you already assumed, which is one out of every million, one out of every million rooms contains the fabric of reality. And now it appears as though one in two rooms contains the fabric of reality. How do we square these two things? We square these two things because that way, that intuition of thinking about probabilities as applied to infinite sets doesn't work. Uh, I'll continue reading. David writes, mathematically, this is nothing momentous. The example merely demonstrates again that the attributes probable or improbable, rare or common, typical or untypical, have literally no meaning in regard to comparing infinite sets of natural numbers. But when we turn to physics, it is bad news for anthropic arguments. Imagine an infinite set of universes, all with the same laws of physics, except that one particular physical constant, let's call it d, has a different value in each. Strictly speaking, we should imagine an uncountable infinity of universes, like those infinitely thin cards. But that only makes the problem I'm about to describe worse, so let us keep things simple. Assume that of these universes, infinitely many have values of d that produce astrophysicists. 
and infinitely many have values that do not. Then let us number the universes in such a way that all those with astrophysicists have even numbers and all the ones without astrophysicists have odd numbers. I'll just pause there before I go on. Now, why would David talk about having a constant that leads to astrophysicists? Well, people involved in or interested in SETI um, or who write about the possibility of intelligent life out there, they often confine their discussions to how do we detect astrophysicists? Why on earth would that be the measure of finding intelligence out there? Well, if you're looking for intelligence, the best way that we know currently, um, according to the SETI project anyway, is to listen. To listen to, in particular, radio signals coming from deep space. Radio signals. And if you're listening for radio signals, you're probably listening for people who are deliberately sending them in our direction, and they'd probably be some kind of astrophysicist. Or <laughs> using some other astrophysics technology. Okay. Anyway, I'll continue reading. This does not mean that half the universes have astrophysicists. Just as with the book distribution in Infinity Hotel, we could equally well label the universes so that only every third universe or every trillionth one had astrophysicists, or that every trillionth one did not. So there is something wrong with the anthropic explanation of the fine-tuning problem. We can always make fine-tuning go away just by relabeling the universes. At our whim, we can number them in such a way that astrophysicists seem to be the rule, or the exception, or anything in between. Now suppose that we calculate, using the relevant laws of physics, with different values of d, whether astrophysicists will emerge, we find that for values of d outside the range, from say 137 to 138, those that contain astrophysicists are very sparse. Only one in a trillion such universes has astrophysicists. Okay, this is um, a complete diversion by me, but um, ah, it's an area I'm interested in, so indulge me for a moment. Um, the choice of 137 to 138 is no accident. Um, the 137 to 138 is actually the reciprocal of what is known as the fine structure constant. And so I'll just mention that very, very quickly as to what the fine structure constant is for anyone else who happens to be interested in um, astrophysics. So the fine structure constant is known as alpha. And alpha is unique not unique, okay, it's, but it's special because it is something called a dimensionless constant, a dimensionless constant. And it's actually a constant that's made up of other really cool constants. So the charge on an electron squared divided by Planck's constant multiplied by the speed of light. Now the dimensions of that are well, it has, it's dimensionless because it has no units. So this isn't in terms of meters per coulomb or kilograms or anything like that. The constants all cancel out. And so you end up with just a number. And what's often used is one over alpha. Uh, and one over alpha happens to have the value very close to 137. It's, I think it is, it's checking the internet right now. 137.035, um, it's known very precisely, 999.074. And the fine structure constant, among other things, uh, determines the strength of the electromagnetic force. And the uncertainty in this number here 
is extremely small. So we can measure the fine structure constant really well. It's called the fine structure constant because when you look at things like emission spectra made up of these bright lines, when you pass light, let's say, coming from a star through something through a telescope and then through a thing called a spectroscope and you split it up into all the colors of the rainbow or whatever the colors coming from the star happen to be, you notice that there is fine structure to those lines. And the fine structure constant gives us a way of, the, the, the distance between these lines can give us a measure of what the fine structure constant actually is. And so we can measure the fine structure constant here in the laboratory on Earth, um, in stars that are near to us in the galaxy, and in stars and quasars on the other side of the universe. And uh, this is what certain astrophysicists are doing. They're trying to measure whether or not the fine structure constant has changed over time, because if it did, that would suggest something rather remarkable. It would suggest that the laws of physics are not precisely the same here on Earth as they are on the other side of the universe. For a while there, we thought we had found a difference in the fine structure constant, um, but the fact is that that was shown to be systematic error in the experiment. But if the fine structure constant was changing, then the explanation for a changing fine structure constant over time could mean that Planck's constant had changed, the speed of light had changed, or that the charge, the elementary charge on an electron had changed. Um, any one of those three things would be remarkable. Perhaps all three could be changing, but the, the simple fact is it's a rather boring conclusion that at the moment there is no such evidence for a changing fine structure constant. So that's where the number 137, um, I'm guessing, <laughs> has come from. It doesn't seem like an accident to me. All right. Okay, so I'll just repeat what, I've, what I read there. David wrote, we find that for values of D outside the range of 137 to 138, those that contain astrophysicists are very sparse. Only one in a trillion such universes has astrophysicists. Within the range, only one in a trillion does not have astrophysicists. And for values of D between 137.4 and 137.6, they all do. Okay, so this seems to suggest that the value of um, D alpha, um, uh, is key to whether or not a particular universe is going to have astrophysicists, going to have the conditions right for astrophysicists. Um, let's keep on moving. David writes, let me stress that in real life we do not understand the process of astrophysicist formation remotely well enough to calculate such numbers, and perhaps we never shall, as I shall explain in the next chapter. But whether we could calculate them or not, anthropic theorists would wish to interpret such numbers as mean that, if we measure D, we are unlikely to see values outside the range from 137 to 138. But they mean no such thing. For we could just relabel the universes shuffle the infinite pack of cards to make the spacings exactly the other way around, or anything else we liked. So this is really important for people interested in uh, questions about fine structure. As a layperson, I am interested in that question. There's been a lot of books written on this topic. And this is a, an important um, fact to keep in mind that many people who've written books on this topic do not grapple with. That there is this mathematical argument about the way in which we can order this infinite set. Um, that just because we find outside of the range for some particular constant, that it is highly unlikely, apparently, for something like astrophysicists to emerge, to evolve, to, to be possible in those universes. A reordering of that infinite set, because when we're talking about possible universes with different physical laws, what we're actually talking about is a 
class of universes, um, an uncountably large class of universes. And so we could reorder um, those universes in whatever order we like, such that the astrophysicists appear probable or improbable. Okay, and then David goes on and he talks about um, Lee Smolin's idea um, about how black holes could themselves give rise to new universes, which is uh, an interesting idea. I'm going to skip um, almost all of that. I'm going, yes, I'm going to skip all of that uh, and just move right to the end of this section, not this chapter, but this section. Uh, where David writes, none of the anthropic reasoning theories that have been proposed to solve the fine-tuning problem provides any such measure. Most are, most are hardly more than speculations of the form. What if there were universes with different physical constants? There is, however, one theory in physics that already describes a multiverse for independent reasons. All its universes have the same constants of physics, and the interactions of those universes do not involve travel to or measurement of each other. But it does provide a measure for universes. That theory is quantum theory, which I shall discuss in chapter 11. Skipping a very short part, and David writes, Infinite means something like bigger than any finite combination of finite things, but that informal notion is rather circular. Unless we have some independent idea of what makes something finite and what makes a single act of combination finite. The intuitive answer would be anthropocentric. Something is definitely finite if it could, in principle, be encompassed by a human experience. But what does it mean to experience something? Was Cantor experiencing infinity when he proved theorems about it? Or was he experiencing only symbols? But we only ever experience symbols. One can avoid this anthropocentrism by referring instead to measuring instruments. A quantity is definitely neither infinite nor infinitesimal, if it could, in principle, register on some measuring instrument. However, by that definition, a quantity can be finite even if the underlying explanation refers to an infinite set in a mathematical sense. To display the result of a measurement, the needle on a meter might move by one centimeter, which is a finite distance, but it consists of an uncountable infinity of points. This can happen because although points appear in lowest level explanations of what is happening, the number of points never appears in predictions. Just pausing there just to highlight that. That will become important in a moment when we get to the paradoxes of Zeno. So I'll, I'll say that again, um, that although points appear in lowest level explanations of what is happening, the number of points never appears in predictions. Continuing, physics deals in distances, not numbers of points. Similarly, Newton and Leibniz were able to use infinitesimal distances to explain physical quantities like instantaneous velocity, yet there is nothing physically infinitesimal or infinite in, say, the continuous motion of a projectile. Skipping a little again, and then David writes, Only the laws of physics determine what is finite in nature. Failure to realise this has often caused confusion. The paradoxes of Zeno of Elia, such as that of the Achilles and the tortoise, were early examples. Zeno managed to conclude that in a race against a tortoise, Achilles will never overtake the tortoise if it has a head start, because by the time Achilles reaches the point where the tortoise began, the tortoise will have moved on a little. By the time he reaches that new point, it will have moved on a little further, and so on, ad infinitum. Thus, the catching up procedure requires Achilles to perform an infinite number of catching up steps in a finite time, which, as a finite being, he presumably cannot do. So I'll pause there. Let's refer back to what was just said. Physics deals in distances, 
not number of points. This is the problem, this is the solution to Zeno of Elia's conundrum that he was in. Now, I used to argue uh, that there were two ways of going about this. On the one hand, you can talk about um, adding up that I had that sequence up before, that um, let's say you want to traverse a total distance of two meters. Well, first you have to walk one meter, and then you have to walk 0.5 meters, and then 0.25 meters, and then 0.125 meters, etc. And so it would appear that given that each individual step taken takes a finite amount of time, and there's an infinite number of steps, then no matter how short the amount of time, given that there's an infinite number of steps required, each requiring a, infinite amount, a finite amount of time, it's going to take an infinite amount of time to move two meters. That would appear to be Zeno's argument. The mathematical argument is, well, you can add up 1 plus 0 0.5 plus 0 0.25 plus 0.125, etc., etc., and get to 2. Similarly, all you're really arguing is that you're taking your 2 metres, or whatever it happens to be, the distance of 2, and you're splitting it up into an infinite number of um, points. The resolution to any of this, to any time we have a supposed paradox of being able to move through an infinite number of points, but each step along the way taking a finite amount of time, adding up to an infinite amount of time, therefore making motion impossible, is that you're not Physics is not, does not deal in infinite numbers of points. Physics deals in distances. And if you want to get from point A to point B, that's a distance, and that will take you a certain amount of time. What's not going on is you um, actually taking time to go an infinite number of points. That's the, correct, the incorrect way of putting the problem. Let's return to the book, which explains it far more clearly than I do. <laughs> did you see what Zeno did there? He just presumed that the mathematical notion that happens to be called infinity faithfully captures the distinction between finite and infinite that is relevant to that physical situation. That is simply false. If he is complaining that the mathematical notion of infinity does not make sense, then we can refer him to Cantor, who showed that it does. If he is complaining that the physical event of Achilles overtaking the tortoise does not make sense, then he is claiming that the laws of physics are inconsistent, but they are not. But if he is complaining that there is something inconsistent about motion, because one could not experience each point along a continuous path, then he is simply confusing two different things that both happen to be called infinity. There is nothing more to all these paradoxes than that mistake. What Achilles can or cannot do is not deducible from mathematics. It depends only on what the relevant laws of physics say. If they say he will overtake the tortoise in a given time, then overtake it he will. If that happens to involve an infinite number of steps of the form move to a particular location, then an infinite number of such steps will happen. If it involves his passing through an uncountable infi infinity of points, then that is what he does. But nothing physically infinite has happened. Thus, the laws of physics determine the distinction not only between rare and common, probable and improbable, fine-tuned or not, but even between finite and infinite. Just as the same set of universes can be packed with astrophysicists when measured under one set of laws of physics, but have almost none when measured under another, so exactly the same sequence of events can be finite or infinite depending upon what the laws of physics are. Zeno's mistake has been made with various other mathematical abstractions too. In general terms, the mistake is to confuse an abstract attribute with the physical one of the same name. Since it is possible to prove theorems about the mathematical attribute, which have the status of absolutely necessary truths, 
then one is misled into assuming that one possesses a priori knowledge about what the laws of physics must say about the physical attribute. Um, pausing there, David mentions absolutely necessary physical truths. As he says in the Fabric of Reality, as he says in this chapter very shortly, and as he said in his Dirac Medal uh, Award Ceremony speech, the mathematics, mathema Mathematician's Misconception, well, he, it, this is a common theme amongst David's work. Absolutely necessary truths exist. And that is what mathematics is the study of. But our knowledge of those absolutely necessary truths are not absolutely necessary truths. Okay, that sounds too clever by half, but all it means is that our knowledge of anything is fallible. And even though mathematics is a study of things that are not fallible, just as in physics, our study of the laws of physics are the study of things that are perfect. The laws of physics are perfect in some sense. They're, they're out there. Um, they, are, they have a certain final form. They are the laws that govern the universe. They are fixed, immutable. Our knowledge of those laws are not those laws. The knowledge and the thing in reality are two quite different things. So we are always fallible. Our, the knowledge that we produce is always error prone, it contains errors, um, but it can be about things that are absolutely necessarily true. I'm skipping a fair bit more of this chapter now. Um, I'm skipping a significant part again now, and we're moving on to a, a section about the relationship between computation and mathematics and physics. David writes, Turing initially set up the theory of computation, not for the purpose of building computers, but to investigate the nature of mathematical proof. Hilbert in 1900 had challenged mathematicians to formulate a rigorous theory of what constitutes a proof. And one of his conditions was that proofs must be finite. They must use only a fixed and finite set of rules of inference. They must start with a finite number of finitely expressed axioms, and they must contain only a finite number of elementary steps, where the steps themselves are finite. Computations, as understood in Turing's theory, are essentially the same thing as proofs. Every valid proof can be converted into a computation that computes the conclusion from the premises. And every correctly executed computation is a proof that the output is the outcome of the given operations of the input. Now, a computation can be thought of as computing a function that takes an arbitrary natural number as its input and delivers an output that, that depends in a particular way on that input. So, for instance, doubling a number is a function. Infinity Hotel typically tells guests to change rooms by specifying a function and telling them, and telling them all to compute it with different inputs, their room numbers. One of Turing's conclusions was that almost all mathematical functions that exist logically cannot be computed by any program. They are non-computable, for the same reason that most logically possible reallocations of rooms in Infinity Hotel cannot be affected by any instruction by the management. The set of all functions is uncountably infinite, while the set of all programs is merely countably infinite. That is why it is meaningful to say that almost all members of the infinite set of functions have a particular property. Hence also, as the mathematician Kurt Gödel had discovered using a different approach to Hilbert's challenge, almost all mathematical truths have no proofs. They are unprovable truths. It also follows that almost all mathematical statements are undecidable. There is no proof that they are true and no proof that they are false. 
Each of them either is true or false, but there is no way of using physical objects such as brains or computers to discover which is which. The laws of physics provide us only with a narrow window through which we can look out on the world of abstractions. All undecidable statements are, directly or indirectly, about infinite sets. To the opponents of infinity in mathematics, this is due to the meaninglessness of such statements. But to me, it is a powerful argument, like Hofstadter's 641 argument, that abstractions exist objectively. For it means that the truth value of an undecidable statement is certainly not just a convenient way of describing the behaviour of some physical object like a computer or a collection of dominoes. Interestingly, very few questions are known to be undecidable, even though most are, and I shall return to that point. But there are many unsolved mathematical conjectures, and some of those may well be undecidable. Take, for instance, the prime pairs conjecture. A prime pair is a pair of numbers that differ by two, such as five and seven. The conjecture is that there is no largest prime pair, that there are infinitely many of them. Suppose for the sake of argument, that is undecidable, using our physics. Under many other laws of physics, it is decidable. The laws of infinity hotel are an example. Again, the details of how the management would settle the prime pairs issue are not essential to my argument, but I present them here for the benefit of mathematically minded readers. Okay, so I'll go through this briefly and then I'll, I'll explain a little about uh, at least my interpretation of what I think um, uh, the point is here about how if the laws of physics were different, or given that the laws of physics we do have in this universe, how we can prove different things based upon the laws of physics. So the laws of physics are in some sense prior. They are the things that uh, permit what can possibly be predicted within our universe. And given another universe, with different, I mean, a, a universe of different laws entirely, we could prove different things. Okay, so David writes, this is how you would prove the prime pairs conjecture uh, in a different universe, namely the universe in which we find Infinity Hotel. David writes, the management would announce, first, please check within the next minute whether your room number and the number two above it are both primes. Next, if they are, send a message back through lowered numbered rooms saying that you have found a prime pair. Use the usual method for sending rapid messages. Allow one minute for the first step, and thereafter each step must be completed in half the time of the previous one. Store a record of this message in the lowest numbered room that is not already storing a record of a previous such message. Next, check with the room numbered one more than yours. If that guest is not storing such a record as you are, then send the message to room one saying there is a largest prime pair. Okay, at the end of five minutes, the management would know the truth of the prime pair's conjecture. So there is nothing mathematically special about the undecidable questions, the non-computable functions, the unprovable propositions. They are distinguished by physics only. Different physical laws would make different things infinite, different things computable, different truths, both mathematical and scientific, knowable. It is only the laws of physics that determine which abstract entities and relationships are modelled by physical objects, such as mathematicians' brains, computers, and sheets of paper. So what we saw there, if we've got an infinity hotel, which does not obey the laws of physics, we could prove the prime pair's conjecture, which we have no proof of here, and which well may be undecidable. Um, in 
Infinity Hotel, why does it have different laws of physics? Well, one thing is an infinite number of steps can be completed, uh, which requires energy in a finite amount of time. Within five minutes, we can do an infinite number of steps. And presumably we're moving also uh, as we get towards the end of the computation, uh, well beyond the speed of light, uh, asymptotically close to infinite speed. Uh, that violates many laws of physics. Number one, probably, uh, number one, it, it, it exceeds the speed of light. Number two, it violates conservation of energy. The, the faster that we start to move, uh, the more our momentum increases and our mass increases and the energy required to complete these, this is relativity, right? Um, the more the more energy re required in order to move faster and faster and faster. Uh, we can't do any of this. This is why Infinity Hotel has different physical laws. Skipping a little again, and David writes, but if the laws of physics were in fact different from what we currently think they are, then so might be the set of mathematical truths we would then be able to prove, and so might the operations that would be available to prove them with. The laws of physics as we know them happen to afford a privileged status to such operations as not, and and or, acting on individual bits of information, binary digits, or logical true-false true values. That is why those operations seem natural, elementary, and finite to us, and why bits do. If the laws of physics were like, say, those of Infinity Hotel, there would be no additional privileged operations acting on infinite sets of bits. With some other laws of physics, the operations not, and, and or would be non-computable, while some of our non-computable functions would seem natural, elementary, and finite. That brings me to another distinction that depends on the laws of physics. Simple versus complex. Brains are physical objects. Thoughts are computations of the types permitted under the laws of physics. Some explanations can be grasped quickly and easily. Like if Socrates was a man and Plato was a man, then both were men. This is easy because it can be stated in a short sentence and relies on the properties of an elementary operation, namely and. Other explanations are inherently hard to grasp because their shortest form is still long and depends on many such operations. But whether the form of an explanation is long or short, whether it requires few or many elementary operations, depends entirely on the laws of physics under which it is being stated and understood. Quantum computation, which is currently believed to be the fully universal form of computation, happens to have exactly the same set of computable functions as Turing's classical computation. But quantum computation drives a coach and horses through the classical notion of simple or elementary operation. It makes some intuitively very complex things simple. Moreover, the elementary information storing entity in quantum computation, the qubit, quantum bit, is quite hard to explain in non-quantum terminology. Meanwhile, the bit is a fairly complicated object from the perspective of quantum physics. I'll just pause there, just a very brief comment on that section there where David wrote, quantum computation, which is currently believed to be the fully universal form of computation, happens to have exactly the same set of computable functions as Turing's classical computation. Uh, that's an important note to make about uh, quantum computation. There is this misconception out there that quantum computers can actually compute a wider range, have a greater repertoire of different computations than Turing's computation does. That is incorrect. A Turing, a universal Turing computer can compute anything that a quantum computer can. It's just that in many, many cases, 
the Turing computer would take, even if it was operating at switching speeds at the speed of light, uh, and it had infinite memory and the entire universe was you know, a, a classical computer, it wouldn't be able to reach the end of that computation um, you know, within trillions of years. Uh, so although it could do it, given an infinite amount of time, um, you know, it would eventually get to the end of the computation. Um, clearly, it uh, wouldn't be a feasible computation. It's not efficient for certain types of problems. The quantum computer is more efficient for certain kinds of problems than what the classical computer is. They can both complete, they can both compute the same overall number of kinds of computation. Okay, they both operate on laws of physics in this universe. So the set of all possible computations is the same for both classical and quantum computers. But the quantum computers are faster, are faster, much faster, for a certain set of computations. Okay, so skipping a bit, and David returns to a discussion about the mathematician's misconception. Um, I really like this stuff because it is such a misconception. Um, and I don't think it's just the mathematician's misconception. It's mathematics teacher's misconception, therefore it's mathematics students' misconception, and therefore it's everyone's misconception because everyone's been indoctrinated with this stuff at school. Um, so let me read uh, through what is said here. Whether a mathematical proposition is true or not is indeed independent of physics, but the proof of such a proposition is a matter of physics only. There is no such thing as abstractly proving something, just as there is no such thing as abstractly knowing something. Mathematical truth is absolutely necessary and transcendent, but all knowledge is generated by physical processes, and its scope and limitations are conditioned by the laws of nature. One can define a class of abstract entities and call them proofs or computations, just as one can define abstract entities and call them triangles, and have them obey Euclidean geometry. But you cannot infer anything from that theory of triangles about what angle you will turn through if you walk around a closed path consisting of three straight lines. Nor can those proofs do the job of verifying mathematical statements. A mathematical theory of proofs has no bearing on which truths can or cannot be proved in reality or be known in reality. And similarly, a theory of abstract computation has no bearing on what can or cannot be computed in reality. So a computation or a proof is a physical process in which objects such as computers or brains physically model or instantiate abstract entities like numbers or equations and mimic their properties. It is our window on the abstract. It works because we use such entities only in situations where you have good explanations saying that the relevant physical variables in those objects do indeed instantiate those abstract properties. Consequentially, the reliability of our knowledge of mathematics remains forever subsidiary to that of our knowledge of physical reality. Every mathematical proof depends absolutely for its validity on our being right about the rules that govern the behavior of some physical objects like computers or ink and paper or brains. So contrary to what Hilbert thought and contrary to what most mathematicians since antiquity have believed and believe to this day, proof theory can never be made into a branch of mathematics. Proof theory is a science. Specifically, it is computer science. The whole motivation for seeking a perfectly secure foundation for mathematics was mistaken. It was a form of justificationism. Mathematics is characterized by its use of proofs in the same way that science is characterized by its use of experimental testing. In neither case is that the object of the exercise. The object of mathematics is to understand or explain abstract entities. Proof is primarily a means of ruling out false explanations 
and sometimes it also provides mathematical truths that need to be explained. But like all fields in which progress is possible, mathematics seeks not random truths but good explanations. Three closely related ways in which the laws of physics seem fine-tuned are they name all expressible in terms of a single finite set of elementary operations, they all share uniform distinction between finite and infinite operations, and their predictions can all be computed by a single physical object, a universal classical computer. Though to simulate physics efficiently, one would need a one would in general need a quantum computer. It is because the laws of physics support computational universality that human brains can predict and explain the behavior of very unhuman objects like quasars. And it is because of that same universality that mathematicians like Hilbert can build up an intuition of proof and mistakenly think that it is independent of physics. It is not independent of physics. It is merely universal in the physics that governs our world. If the physics of quasars were like the physics of Infinity Hotel and dependent upon the functions that we call non-computable, then we could not make predictions about them unless we could build computers out of quasars or other objects relying on the relevant laws. With the laws of physics slightly more exotic than, with laws of physics slightly more exotic than that, we would not be able to explain anything and hence could not exist. So there is something special infinitely special it seems, about the laws of physics as we find them. Something exceptionally computation friendly, prediction friendly, and explanation friendly. The physicist Eugene Wigner called this the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. For the reasons I have given, anthropic arguments alone cannot explain it. Something else will. Now, um, David then goes through bad explanations for what explains the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics and natural sciences, including, of course, the simulation argument. This is the argument that we're living inside of a simulation and because a simulation would be based on software, which is mathematical in nature, we should therefore expect that mathematics works inside of nature, which is, of course, just a simulation. And this explains it. And that, of course, is a bad explanation. It's an infinite regress because what we really want to know is we want to understand reality. Um, and so our, our question then is simply moved off. It's, it's, it's like the God explanation. It's like, well, if God created the universe, who created God? And apparently you're not allowed to ask that question. Well, if we're a simulation, uh, on what computer are we running? Uh, what's the code? Uh, who's running this computer? Who built this computer? Well, same answer. We, we can't ask that because it's beyond the universe, but these are bad explanations, okay? They're not explanations. They are moving the problem from where it actually is off to a supernatural realm. So I'm going to skip that section, but I encourage everyone to read it. Um, David writes about the limitations about what we can know, and he says, how do all those drastic limitations on what can be known and what can be achieved by mathematics and by computation, including the existence of the undecidable questions in mathematics, square with the maxim that problems are soluble? Well, problems are conflicts between ideas. Most, math most mathematical questions that exist abstractly never appear as the subject of such a conflict. They are never the subject of curiosity, never the focus of conflicting misconceptions about some attribute of the world about some attribute of the world of abstractions. In short, most of them are uninteresting. Moreover, recall that finding proofs is not the purpose of mathematics, it is merely one of the methods of mathematics. The purpose is to understand, and the overall method, as in all fields, is to make conjectures and to criticize them according to how good they are as explanations. One does not understand a mathematical proposition merely by proving it true. 
This is why there are such things as mathematics lectures rather than just lists of proofs. And conversely, the lack of a proof does not necessarily prevent a proposition from being understood. On the contrary, the usual order of events is for the mat mathematician first to understand something about the abstraction in question, and then to use that understanding to conjecture how true propositions about the abstraction might be proved, and then to prove them. A mathematical theorem can be proved, yet remain forever uninteresting. And an unproved mathematical conjecture can be fruitful in providing explanations, even if it remains unproved for centuries, or even if it is undecidable. One such example is the conjecture known in the jargon of computer science as P does not equal NP. It is, roughly speaking, there exist classes of mathematical questions whose answers can be verified efficiently once one has them, but cannot be computed efficiently in the first place by a universal classical computer. Efficient computation is a technical definition that roughly approximates to what we mean by the phrase in practice. Almost all researchers in computing theory are sure that the conjecture is true, which is further refutation of the idea that mathematical knowledge consists only of proofs. This is because although no proof is known, there are fairly good explanations of why we should expect it to be true, and none to the contrary. And so the same is thought to hold for quantum computers. Moreover, a vast amount of mathematical knowledge that is both useful and interesting has been built on the conjecture. It includes theorems of the form, if the conjecture is true, then this interesting con consequence follows. And there are fewer, but still interesting, theorems about what would follow if it were true. Um, skipping a little bit, um, so David is uh, emphasising here how even though there are problems in, there are, there, are, there are statements that one can write down in mathematics that are undecidable, we don't know if they're true or false. And there are true things in mathematics that we can't prove as true. This doesn't present a problem at all for the claim that problems are soluble. In fact, he writes, undecidability no more contradicts the maxim that problems are soluble than does the fact that there are truths about the physical world that we shall never know. I expect that one day we shall have the technology to measure the number of grains of sand on Earth exactly, but I doubt we shall ever know what the exact number was in Archimedes' time. Indeed, I've already mentioned more drastic limitations on what can be known and achieved. There are direct limitations imposed by the universal laws of physics. We cannot exceed the speed of light, and so on. Then there are the limits of epistemology. We cannot create knowledge other than by the fallible method of conjecture and criticism. Errors are inevitable, and only error-correcting processes can succeed or continue for long. None of this contradicts the maxim, because none of those limitations need ever cause an unresolvable conflict of explanations. Hence, I conjecture that. In mathematics, as well as in science and philosophy, if the question is interesting, then the problem is soluble. Fallibilism tells us that we can be mistaken about what is interesting. And so three corollaries follow from this conjecture. The first is that inherently insoluble problems are inherently uninteresting. The second is that in the long run, the distinction between what is interesting and what is boring is not a matter of subjective taste, but an objective fact. And the third corollary is that the interesting problem of why every problem that is interesting is also soluble, is itself soluble. At present, we do not know why the laws of physics seem fine-tuned. We do not know why the various forms of universality exist, though we do know many of the connections between them. We do not know why the world is explicable, but eventually we shall. And when we do, there will be infinitely more left to explain. The most important of all limitations on knowledge creation is that we cannot prophesy we cannot predict the content of ideas yet to be created, or their effects. The limitation is not only consistent with the unlimited growth of knowledge, it is entailed by it. 
as I shall explain in the next chapter. I'll pause there. I saw an advertisement for David Attenborough's latest documentary. Love David Attenborough. Great. Love watching his documentaries. As David mentions later in the book, uh, David Attenborough went to something that was uh, terribly pessimistic. Uh, and, and, and many nature documentaries now are terribly pessimistic. And the thrux of one of the latest documentaries that David Attenborough has, and in fact, this is a common theme now running through David Attenborough documentaries, wonderful as they are, is the natural world is swiftly coming to an end, or the world is coming to an end, that we are doomed, uh, that something needs to be done in order to prevent the virus that is human beings and technology and progress from destroying our world. In particular, when it comes to the very real problem of climate change and the increasing temperature and the melting of Greenland and the melting of Antarctica and rising sea levels, I'm like David, I am not an expert in this, but I am happy as I would be if I went to a urologist and asked if I had cancer and the urologist said, here are all the reasons why you do. Um, I believe that the urologist has gone through sufficient uh, training and error correction and has a good standard of trying to figure out the truth of the situation. Because I understand what the process is that has led to the diagnosis of me having cancer, I, in the same way, think that the processes of all these scientists, these climate scientists and physicists and geologists and people who are checking the data have gotten the data right. I can't check all the data. I could spend the time to go and check the data if I wanted to. It doesn't seem, of all the problems that are out there, I am not animated that this is one of the most pressing problems of all. There are many, many pressing problems uh, from uh, terrorism to um, um, the, the, the sun suddenly doing something that we didn't expect, viruses, natural disasters, earthquakes, floods. Um, there, there, there are many, many, many problems, okay? So yes, uh, absolutely, anthropocentric climate change is a real thing and something should be done about it. The problem that many of us have with the way in which people are responding to anthropocentric climate change is encapsulated there in that paragraph. So I just want to read it again. It says, the most important of all limitations on knowledge creation is that we cannot prophesy. We cannot predict the content of ideas yet to be created or their effects. So what's this got to do with climate change? At the moment, the overwhelming majority of purported solutions to climate change, and this goes all the way back to when David gave his first TED talk. I mean, this is a decade now and no progress seems to have happened. The, the solution appears to be to slow progress, literally to slow progress. So taxation on sources of energy to migrate from cheap energy that works to more expensive energy that pollutes less. But this is not claimed to actually solve climate change, although it is sold as that. Anyone can look up the modeling. 
that if we were to reduce our use of fossil fuels by 50%, which is highly unlikely, then the temperature of the Earth will still increase because the amount of carbon dioxide will still increase. If we were to eliminate all fossil fuel use, which would cost more money than possibly the globe has, but let's say we did, the temperature would still increase. The polar ice caps would, polar ice caps would still melt. The sea levels would rise. So these are not solutions. So what should we do? Well, one thing we should do is to actively cool the globe. This is what geoengineering is about. This would take energy. We could manufacture mirrors and put them in space. This would take energy. This would take fossil fuels. But possibly more importantly, we don't know. If, if, if the solution is, if the problem is the temperature is rising too much, rising too high, such that therefore the solution is reduce the temperature, then what we need is knowledge about how to do that. Knowledge production requires energy. The more knowledge we can produce, the faster we can produce it, and the cheaper and more efficiently we can produce it, the better. We don't know how we're going to figure out fusion. I would hedge my bets and say fusion is physically possible here on Earth. Uh, in fact, it has to be possible. We know it's possible on the sun, so if we could figure out a way to do it on Earth, fantastic. There are people working on fusion power. Once we have small fusion reactors here on Earth, game over, problem solved. We don't have to worry about any other kind of form of energy. Fossil fuel or um, uh, wind power, solar power, will have fusion power. Highly efficient, very, very cheap. When the argument is given to us, that we must move from fossil fuels to other kinds of energy, not to solve climate change, but merely to slow it down, people are engaged in prophecy. What they're saying is that there is no other alternative, that the knowledge to solve climate change will not be created, that we are in a moment of stasis where the only possible response to climate change is to make things worse for just about everyone. And so it is kind of prophecy. Knowledge, growth is unlimited. And we're going to see that next chapter. Let me finish reading this chapter and I'll get off my high horse. David writes, that problems are soluble does not mean that we already know their solutions or can generate them to order. That would be akin to creationism. The biologist Peter Medawa described science as the art of the soluble. But the same applies to all forms of knowledge. All kinds of creative thought involve judgments about what approaches might or might not work. Gaining or losing interest in particular problems or sub-problems is part of the creative process and itself constitutes problem solving. So whether problems are soluble does not depend on whether any given question can be answered or answered by any particular thinker on a particular day. But if progress ever depended on violating a law of physics, then problems are soluble would be false. Okay, so that's the end of A Window on Infinity. And the next chapter is chapter nine, Optimism. Um, I do apologize that this particular episode uh, took much longer to produce than, than any of the others. As I say, this is a labor of love, but I, I'm kind of uh, um, 
I'm kind of buoyed by the fact that some of my favorite podcasts that are out there actually are more infrequent even than mine are. So um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the rate, but you know, I'm, I'm also happy to receive messages as I do that people are um, encouraging me to make these more frequently. Uh, but I think we're doing pretty well. We're up to chapter nine. I've only been doing this for you know, close to a year, so another year and we'll be basically through the entire book and then we'll be on to the fabric of reality. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, just, um, I'm not going to do chapter nine now, but what I will release soon after this episode is um, one about free will, I think. Uh, it's going to be a diversion away from the beginning of infinity, uh, just onto um, something else I'm interested in. It'll be a much shorter one than this. But thanks for watching or listening. Um, I hope it was clear and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.